Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Uh, so begins the gospel according to Luke. Luke is writing to a, a man named Theophilus, a, a person about whom we know nothing else. You may know that Luke's gospel is only half of his contribution to the New Testament because the author of Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. That's a book that begins with these words, as we'll read in just a second. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven. When you consider both the gospel and the book of Acts, Luke's writing comprises fully one quarter of the New Testament. And in, at the midpoint of Luke's narrative uh, is the story of the event that we celebrate today in conjunction with churches around the world, the ascension of the Lord. And Luke's gospel actually ends with the ascension, is what he says. Uh, then he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried into heaven. So that's the way the first half ends. And then Luke returns to the same scene at the beginning of Acts, which means uh, that Jesus leaves the scene halfway through Luke's great narrative. The second half, he devotes to the work of Jesus' followers, the church, which is to say the second half of Luke's great story that comprises a quarter of the New Testament. That second half uh, is, about, is about us. It's interesting to me that only Luke actually tells us the story of Jesus' ascension. Mark's gospel briefly uh, mentions it, and there are a couple of allusions to it in the New Testament, but only Luke actually tells us the story, and he actually talks about it twice, which begs the question for the morning, what is the, the theology that the story of the ascension is meant to convey? What is the evangelist Luke getting at uh, when he tells us about the ascension of the Lord. So, let's read most of that story now. This is the lectionary uh, New Testament text for the day, Acts chapter 1. We'll read through verse 9 and then come back and read the last few verses later. Listen, friends, for the word of God, as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Acts, which is the evangelist Luke. <clears throat> In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Jesus um, was actually not the first person in the Bible to ascend to heaven. Uh, It was rare, but it was not unknown. The book of Genesis tells us that Enoch was taken by God in such a manner. Uh, Second Kings tells us that Elijah, prophet Elijah, ascended in a whirlwind to heaven. And there were stories um, in the tradition in the tradition, but did not make it in the Bible, that talk about the ascensions of Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and Ezra. And so the the concept of ascension was not new when Jesus experienced it. What made and makes the doctrine of the ascension unique for us Christians, though, is its its theological significance. Uh, The point is not that Christ ascended into heaven. The point is that, as the Apostle Creed puts it, um, we say this every week, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. The theological term for this is eschatology. It's the Greek for for, uh, the theology of the last things, of what will come at the end of time. The church believed and affirms to this day that Christ's ascension uh, ushered in the messianic age that Christ's reign as Christ the King began with his ascension into heaven and will uh, never end. And importantly, as you know, the church has always believed that the, uh, the ascension was the first leg of a, of a round trip, right? That Christ is going to return again someday in the second coming. In fact, we know that in the early years of the Christian movement, uh, there was a widespread expectation that Christ's return was imminent. There's evidence to suggest that that many, if not most, of that first generation of disciples expected Christ to return in their lifetime. Many of the earliest Christians thought that the the second coming uh, would be upon us any day, and that all the problems of this world, all the evil in this world, would be conquered by Christ himself upon his return. And when that did not happen, the church had to develop different theology and different ideas about how we deal with the problems of this world and the evil in this world until Christ returns. When I was a kid, I spent most of my formative years in the Washington, D.C. area, and uh, whenever family or friends would come into town, we would go sightseeing. The National Air and Space Museum was a favorite destination, and seeing rockets and uh, moon rocks and astronaut suits and lunar landers and all that really uh, always fascinated me. I've got a little 45 RPM record, a little single, some of y'all know what that looks like, with a recording of Neil Armstrong's voice as humans walked on the earth or walked on the moon for the first time. My second grade teacher at Poolsville Elementary, Mrs. Mondi, uh, gave it to me in the spring of 1978 because every time she would play it in class, I'd be fascinated. And finally, at the end of the year, she signed it for me and gave it to me, and I've, I've got it to this day. The whole the whole concept of space travel has been uh, pretty amazing to me my whole life. And as soon as I was old enough to make some logical connections, uh, each year when the story of the Ascension would come up and we would talk about it in church, and in fact, each Sunday uh, when we would recite the creed and we would get to that part about Jesus ascending into heaven, I would wonder exactly how that worked. <laughs> uh, the notion of ascending to heaven is a, it's a spatial metaphor. It implies that heaven is somehow up there, right? And one of the problems with spatial metaphors is that we, we know a lot more now than we did 
back then than our ancient ancestors did. Uh, we know what's up there. We've actually been up there, and it's not a city in the clouds. It's easy to take for granted the, the stunning scope of, of knowledge available to us at this point in our human history. And I've got to think uh, that if, if Luke knew then what we know now, he might have told this story of Jesus' departure a little differently because in the great creeds of the church, the, the point of the ascension is not in the ascending, but rather the theological truth that that ascending conveyed. The point is not that Christ went up. The point is that Christ reigns today and will return someday. In a similar way, the point of Luke's centerpiece ascension story, the one that he ends his gospel with and the one that he begins the Acts of the Apostles with, the point of that story is not about the going up at all. For Luke, it means something else, something more obvious. The ascension for Luke has a, a, a simple meaning that gets lost if we get distracted by that spatial metaphor. It's a meaning that is every bit as important to us now as it was the day Christ ascended. So let's finish that text. So verse 9, when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going up, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I wonder uh, if somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke, Luke knew the problem with spatial metaphors. Um, and I wonder if he, if he didn't try to uh, address them in this story internally in a maybe less obvious way. Jesus gives his disciples their final instructions, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. That's your, that's your job now. And then he disappears in a cloud and the disciples just stand there looking, right? And then these, these angels uh, appear and they say, uh, what are y'all looking at? <laughs> what are you doing? Get busy. He, he just, he told you what to do. You've got work to do. And just in case the disciples are inclined to say, yeah, 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 but he's going to be back any minute now. Just stand there looking up. Jesus himself had said just a verse or two earlier, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set. So go and do the stuff that I taught you to do. And then what, what Luke does is spend the second half of his narrative, the entire book of the Acts of the Apostles, talking about what the early church did and said in the name of the Ascended One. You see, the point of the ascension for Luke, I believe, is a simple one. Jesus is not physically here anymore. And we as the church should not be wasting time worrying about uh, when he's going to return or what's going to happen when he does. Because disciples have the power and the authority to do great things in Christ's name. Not only do we have the power and authority to do great things in Christ's name, we have been commanded to bear the gospel of love and mercy and justice and peace to the world. That's, that's our job. So Luke says, stop looking up to heaven and get on with being witnesses, yes, in word and also in deed. Be my hands and feet. Be the body of Christ. There's a reason that metaphor exists. 
which is an especially important message this week, I think, after Uvalde. Pope John XXIII was a, a monumental figure in the 20, 20th century church, unless you were raised Catholic or know Catholic history, you probably don't know his name. Um, he was the pope who called the Second Vatican Council, which really had lasting and profoundly important effects. And he was also uh, a very warm, very charming, uh, very funny man, wonderful sense of humor, and uh, I, I love the story about him. Some of you have heard me tell this, especially if you've been in Bible study with me. So one day, uh, there's a press conference during Vatican II, and this reporter uh, raises his hand and uh, asks the Pope what he would say to the church, what would be his message to the Vatican, what uh, edict would go out all across the, to Christians all across the world if the Pope knew with certainty that Jesus was coming back that day. And obviously he had been thinking about this for a while because he did not miss a beat. He said, that's easy. Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> we should look busy. We should, be, we should be busy about the work of the church as Christians rather than standing around looking up, waiting for Christ to return, or wondering if God's going to solve the problems in this world. We should be busy heeding his final instructions to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus himself gave us those marching orders. And so if we want uh, meaningful change in the world, if we, if we want the world to look more like the kingdom that God intends, like we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer, well, that's our work to do in partnership with God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we, we pray for God's kingdom, for sure, and then we get to work doing what we can to make that so. That's what the purpose of this story is, if you ask me. In 1938, a, a Scottish minister, that guy uh, named George MacLeod, left his flourishing parish in a, in a suburb of Glasgow, and he went to rebuild an ancient abbey on the island of Iona. He built the structure on the foundations of a medieval Benedictine monastery on the ruins of a, a medieval Benedictine monastery, which uh, in turn had been constructed on the site of a monastic community that had been founded way back in 563 AD. MacLeod's vision was to, to found a modern ecumenical community uh, devoted to, to building an authentic Christian life. Iona became and remains today a, a temporary retreat for Christians of all denominations from all over the world. It's a place where people uh, join together for worship and fellowship and work on a, on a site that was first consecrated for Christian living almost 1,500 years ago. At Iona, people literally gather from the ends of the earth. They renew themselves, and then they go back out to the ends of the earth to bear witness to the gospel, which, of course, is our call as Christians. And MacLeod uh, used a Celtic term to describe Iona. He described it as a, as a thin place. In his words, it's a place where uh, just a tissue paper separates the material from the spiritual, a place where heaven and earth are almost together. The concept of a thin place it seems to me this beautiful Celtic idea is a more than adequate replacement for the problematic spatial metaphors we sometimes inherit 
I have no doubt that Iona is a very thin place indeed. It's on my bucket list to go. But I also know that I don't have to go to Scotland to experience one, and neither do you. If you were here on Easter morning in our congregation, uh, you know that was a pretty thin place. Full choir, orchestra, hallelujah chorus, thousands of disciples gathered together to proclaim our shared faith in the risen Christ. This, this room uh, was a pretty thin place that morning. But it's not just in worship that we experience thin places, in my opinion. In a few weeks, the halls of our church are going to be full of hundreds of kids here, elementary school age kids here for vacation Bible school. And it's going to be loud, and it's going to be messy, it's going to be chaotic, but absolutely we'll feel the presence of God here. And that doesn't just have to occur in a church. The week after that, our youth and their adult leaders are going to go on their mission trip to Eastland, Texas, on their annual trip to serve as the hands and feet of Christ in the world. I've been on youth mission trips, plenty of them, and I can tell you, uh, on top of a roof, when you're re-roofing a house, that's a pretty thin place. I mean, spiritually speaking, hopefully not physically. And then the week after that, our youth choir is going to go to Washington, D.C., and they're going to sing their faith for others before they bring it back here and share it with us at home. These are are thin places, and they're all examples of ways in which we, as Christians, are not just looking up for Jesus, waiting for him to come back, but we're getting on with the business of being Jesus for the world. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. Uh, There's a devotional that George McLeod found. I'm sure he stole it from somebody because that's what preachers do, steal stories. And it's it's a story about uh, Christ's ascension into heaven and what happened when he got back to heaven that day. And it said that the angel Gabriel met Jesus at the pearly gates and he said, Lord, this is a great salvation that you have wrought. What an incredible thing you have done for the world. Jesus just said, yeah. And Gabriel said, well, well, what plans do you have for carrying on the work? How how are people going to know what you have done, how, how is the, the work of the gospel going to continue? What's, what's the plan? And Jesus said, well, I left, uh, I left Peter and James and John and, and Martha and Mary to do what I asked them to do and to tell their friends about it, to share the gospel and to be the gospel. And then they would, their friends are going to tell their friends and that's going to just keep going until all the world will know. And Gabriel was a little taken aback by that. He says, well, Lord, uh, suppose Peter's too busy with his nets. Suppose Martha's too busy with her work or their friends are, are too occupied with the cares of the world. What if, they, what if they don't do what you ask them to do? What if they forget to tell their friends? Then what? What if, they, what if their lives get too busy? What if they get too complacent? What if they get too comfortable? What if they're not really all that interested in telling others about your love and telling what you have done for the world? What if they choose not to live their lives as a witness to your gospel because it's too hard or too inconvenient or they just don't want to. What happens then? So Jesus didn't answer immediately. But then he said, this quiet and, and humble and wonderful voice, he said it confidently, Gabriel, I haven't made any other plans. I'm counting on them. 
Friends, we are plan A for the Lord, and he doesn't have a backup plan. We are his witnesses through our words and through our deeds to all that he's taught. And the world won't know it unless we say it and live it. There are problems with spatial metaphors, to be sure. They come up on Ascension Sunday for me every year, but wherever Jesus went when he ascended, Luke makes it clear he's not physically here now. He lives within each one of us. We are his hands and feet in the world. We are the ones that he's commanded to embody the love of God that he made known to us. And there's not a backup plan. In the words of that great poet and theologian, Bono, in a song that our choir sang for us a few weeks back, I believe in kingdom come. Then all the colors will bleed into one. I believe in the second coming. I believe there will be a day when God is all in all and all the problems of this world will be solved. We believe and affirm as a church that Christ will return someday. But in the meantime, (laughs) in the meantime, he's counting on us. May we be up to the task. Amen.